Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in the book of Daniel. Now, Come Follow Me covers chapters 1 through 6. We're going to look at the whole thing, but we're really going to focus on the 1 through 6 chapters because that's really the core of this week's message. And so Daniel's going to be this example of how do I stay true in a, an environment that's hostile to faith? That's our day. That's where we live today. We live in a world where having beliefs and certain things and certain values to many people is considered hate speech, or they say things like, how can you be so intolerant? And I think that's what the modern prophets are trying to challenge us today to say, stand up for what's right, but still be loving and kind. That's why this week's Come Follow Me is such an important lesson, because this is going to be a painful reminder of the society in which we live and the battle that we fight. I can't think of very many more applicable books of the Old Testament that apply to what's going on right in front of us today than the book of Daniel. What you need to see here is that the Babylonians have come in and conquered the Jews, and they are taking the best and brightest of them back to Babylon. Now, think about that. If you were conquering a people, you wouldn't want to just destroy all of them. You would take the best and the brightest and the ones that other people would notice and impose your culture and your belief system and who you are, and you'd put your identity on them. Now, think about the demoralizing message that sends to everyone else who survives, that our best and our brightest have turned and have become Babylonians, and they worship Babylonian gods, and they do Babylonian things, and they're now promoting the very system that has destroyed the culture that they used to belong to. And I hate to say it, but that's the world in which we live. You are watching this very thing unfold today, that Satan wants to do more than just conquer righteousness. He wants to take the best and the brightest and the most admirable and the people who will gain notoriety and gain attention, and he wants to turn them and have them then now espouse his culture and promote it and teach it, because nothing can be more demoralizing to a cause than to watch people you respect walk away from that cause and espouse the enemy's cause. It's an insult to the group of people you are conquering. So the book of Daniel lives today in that we watch Satan trying to force his culture onto people who once fought for Christ And they're taking the very best and converting them into Babylonians right in front of us. So to watch Daniel stand up and say, I'm not going to do this, is one of the greatest victories we could study. To watch Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah stand up with their culture and they say, we will not bow the knee. We will not give in. Even if you take our lives, we will not let go of what we know to be true. And so those two stories, chapter 1 and chapter 3, really is the heart and soul of the battle that's waging now. It's the battle to stay at the tree of life 
and not worry about what the people in the building are saying. It's the battle to hold on to what you know is true. It's the father who came to Jesus and said, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Can we answer my questions without me throwing out everything that I believe in the process? That's what we're going to study this week. And hopefully you can see why it's so pertinent to our lives today. But let's do a little history. We need to understand what's going on, where we fit. We're back to Jehoiakim again. We've seen his name pop up numerous times. I'm going to have Mike, our history expert, walk us through the history, and then we'll take a look at how do you stand up against the Babylonians who are trying to shove their culture down your throat. Yeah. Daniel is in Babylon during the 6th century, from basically roughly 598 BC to the end of his life. Now remember, the exiles are going to leave and come back to Jerusalem in a series of waves around 516 or 520, right in that time period. My take on this, this is just me, is the book of Daniel is reporting events during the 6th century, but that the text as we have it was probably later constructed. And that's totally okay. I mean, we see examples of this all through the Bible. So right out of the gate in this book, we have this reference in Daniel that has the date wrong, as well as the wrong king on the throne at the time of the siege. Daniel chapter 1 says that in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And so we actually have some issues with dating. First of all, Jehoiakim reigns from 609 to 598 historically, and Jerusalem is besieged in 598 after Jehoiakim dies. And so if this had been in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, it would have been 606 or 605. So the statement right there in the very beginning of the book is off by seven years. So what do we know from this? One of the things we think we know by looking at this first verse is this probably came later, and it probably came at a time when the person writing down the story maybe didn't have access to all of the information. The text of Daniel is mostly in Aramaic. A lot of this stuff is not in Hebrew, but it's in Aramaic. Now, Aramaic uses the characters of the Hebrew alphabet, and a lot of the construction is similar, but some of the words are different. And so scholars look at this and they say, The book of Daniel was probably constructed in the second century BC and used as a book to help them to be faithful. Because you see, in the second century BC, there was a lot of challenges with being a Jew. Um, There was a big push by this guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, and he was doing some horrible things to the Jews. He actually desecrated the temple. And a lot of the things that he was doing is going to be explained in the last bit of Daniel, chapters 7 through 12. So Daniel 7 through 12 is what many people call the apocalyptic message of Daniel. It's full of apocalyptic prophecies. These chapters use a lot of images that are highly symbolic and also emphasizes the importance of the coming of the Son of Man that's going to fix things. And the dawn of the apocalyptic is really coming about in these few hundred years before Jesus, and the people that write the New Testament see Jesus as the Son of Man. So we'll talk about that at the end of the podcast. So let's jump into chapter 1. Now, chapter 1 can 
easily lead to a word of wisdom discussion. And it it, it lends itself to having a discussion about, I'm not going to eat meat or drink wine. Instead, I'm going to eat more healthy food. And I think we could read it that, and there's some legitimacy to that. But the story is deeper than that. It's not that Daniel was saying, I don't want to eat meat, I'd rather eat grains. This is a lot deeper than the food they were eating. Absolutely. The issue in chapter one is the insistence by Daniel and his companions that they not eat, quote, the king's meat. This is most likely because the king's meat violated the food laws in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. Because they show the king that their diet is more beneficial to their countenances, it says, they were given pulse to eat instead. And a lot of translators translate that word for pulse as grains. I think that's a really good translation. The Jewish study Bible goes with legumes. We have pulse in here, and if you look in your footnotes, it just says foods made from seeds. I don't think that's the issue. I don't think it's that they just want to eat uh, grains, but I see some Latter-day Saints looking at this saying, oh my goodness, see, there it is, grains and not drinking wine. And yet we need to remember that the Jews ate meat and they drank wine. They're just not eating the king's meat. And I think it's pretty safe to say that the king is offering them meat that the Jews would consider unclean. I think that's really what it's saying, but it's not saying that. So we're kind of, I'm guessing, I'm making assumptions, but I think there's a deeper issue. How much of Babylon am I going to let in? I think that's the issue. So I'm going to make a leap and say that the king's meat and the king's wine is symbolically the same thing as the image in chapter three and the music as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah bowing down to the golden image when the music sings. Honor the gods of the Babylonians, whether that's by eating the meat that was sacrificed to them or bowing down to the image. The idea here is the world is trying to impose its gods, its culture, and its values upon you. I think the whole key, if we're looking at chapter 1 and chapter 3 together— There's this defining moment where Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah have been found to not bow to the image when the music plays. They are not worshiping the Babylonian gods. They are staying faithful to Jehovah, and so they're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And before they do so, there's this beautiful little moment with Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 3, verse 16, now it it uses their Babylonian names, but I do not want to impose upon them their Babylonian identity. And somehow we've come to know these three by their Babylonian names. I think that in and of itself is kind of a conquering. So in verse 16, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O God. There's the act of faith. I would rather live by my standards, and I trust that the God of heaven who gave me those standards will preserve me and protect me. And then comes three words that I think have become some of the most beautiful words in the Bible. But if not, 
even if he chooses not to protect me, even if I am canceled, even if I'm ostracized and mocked and made fun of, be it known unto thee, O King, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Now, obviously, that's going to do to the world today exactly what it did to Nebuchadnezzar back then. It filled him full of fury, and his form was changed against them. And so he commanded that the fire be cranked up seven times hotter. And in fact, it will end the lives of the guards who are throwing them into the fire. But when they get thrown in, when the consequences of their defiance, when their consequences of not bowing down to the world, when the consequences hit and they are thrown into the fiery furnace, and then they look and they say, verse 24, didn't we cast three men bound into the fire? Yes. Verse 25, lo. I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. The form of the fourth is like the Son of God. God was with them in the fiery furnace. And the promise is that he will be with us if we hold to the standards. Now, we're going to see this again in the book of Revelation. You're, going to, you're seeing how all these apocalyptic writers in the Old Testament, including Isaiah, are very tied to the vision of John that we now have in the book of Revelation. Even Nephi gets the vision. The angel tells Nephi that many of the things you've seen will be seen by John. So we have a similar vision in the Book of Mormon, but the idea here is that in the 13th chapter of Revelation, we have this beast in the image of the kingdoms of the world, and he is fighting against the saints, trying to destroy them by putting his image on them. And then at the end of chapter 13, if you don't have the image of the beast— you cannot play in his playground. You can't buy and sell. You can't get along. You get canceled. You get canceled. And I think one of the things that Daniel is trying to say is, no, we're going to live by our standards. They can live in Babylon, but be Jewish. Now, I think this is the heart and soul of what you're going to study this week you're going to study a whole lot of pressure to bow to the gods of the Babylonians. And our children and our grandchildren grow up surrounded by pressure to worship the gods of the world today. So one great lesson is to hold to the example of both Daniel and then Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and say, I won't bow down. I will not give up my standards to be accepted by the world. Now, the second thing I would add goes back to Daniel chapter 1, the story of the king's meat. We don't have to be antagonistic. We don't have to have venom in our mouths and in our words when we do it. 
And I, that's why I love Daniel's example. Daniel clearly has a very loving relationship with the prince of the eunuchs who has to enforce the king's commands. So I think he's trying to teach us that we can do this without animosity. Back in chapter 1, verse 8, where Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's meat. I'm not going to eat the king's meat. Watch how he handles it. And I think this is a beautiful lesson for those of us who are trying to stand up for what is right in the world in which we live. So in verse 8, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. I think that verse needs to be emphasized and talked about this week, that you can purpose to not defile yourself, but still have a relationship of favor and tender love with the very people who are pushing you. He earns the respect and has a loving relationship. And I think that's the key. Now, think about how the Book of Mormon teaches that. Think about Ammon. As he walks in to work with King Lamoni, Ammon walks in serving and loving and caring, even though I'm not going to defile myself with the tradition of the Lamanites, but he does it in an an environment of serve, which causes Lamoni to say, who are you and what do you believe? I love that Ammon says to Lamoni in chapter 18, verse 17, he says, Behold, I am a man, and I am thy servant. Therefore, whatsoever thou desirest, which is right, that will I do. See, Ammon was able to hold on to his standards. I'm not going to do something that is wrong. And I think that's the message that Daniel is portraying. Yeah. And we have images today that the culture is basically saying, you must bow down. And I think the book of Daniel is giving us permission to say in love, I'm not going to bow down. I acknowledge your humanity. I acknowledge your goodness, but I'm not going to bow down to that image. Yeah. Watch this great message of the Book of Mormon as it applies to how do I deal with the animosity of my neighbors who believe I'm guilty of hate, who, who I'm just trying to live my religion and they think I'm a hater. How do I deal with that? Well, I love the book of Helaman, and I think the book of Helaman is given to us as a pattern of the days before his coming. I will tell you this, that the second coming of Christ is going to be very similar in pattern to the first coming of Christ in America. Granted, the second coming won't imitate his coming in the New Testament, but the second coming of Christ will be very similar to the first coming of Christ in America, which means the days before his second coming are very similar to the days before his first coming. And in that sense, I take a lot from the book of Helaman. I believe the book of Helaman is a pattern of our day. In chapters 1 and 4 of Helaman, something happens that never happened in Alma during the great war between the Nephites and the Lamanites and Captain Moroni. In chapter 1 and 4 of Helaman, they get all the way to Zarahemla. They never conquered the capital city 
in Alma, but twice in Helaman, they get all the way to the heart of the Nephite land. Now, the first time they weren't prepared for it, so it turned to their destruction, but the second time they were. And I think if this is a pattern of our day, I believe the Book of Mormon is saying that the wars in our day will come right to the heart. Look at section 87 and Joseph's prophecy about war. He basically predicts the end of wars of conquest and that the wars in our day will be wars of ideologies. Wars of the heart is what I call them. Wars of slaves rising up against their masters. Those who've been oppressed fighting against those who they believe oppressed them. And if you look at what we have fought over the last hundred or so years, that's exactly right. We're not watching massive borders change, but we're watching ideologies. And that's what's causing fights and anger and contention today. In Helaman chapter 4, the Lamanites have come right to the heart. So Moroniah, the son of Captain Moroni, is going to use the sword to fight back. And verse 10, he succeeded in regaining half of their possessions. He got back half. And then he gave up. Verse 18, Moroniah could obtain no more. Verse 19, he abandoned his design to obtain the remainder of the land. Now, I can't help but see in this a symbol of how to deal with wars of the heart. If you're going to use the sword, you will never get your land back. Wars of the heart cannot be fought on the side of righteousness with swords. So in chapter 5, Nephi and Lehi, the prophets, take over, and they start preaching. They're going to do with the gospel what Moroniah tried to do with the sword. Now, watch the difference. They convert 8,000 people in Zarahemla. Now, who was in Zarahemla? That was the Lamanite army who had conquered Zarahemla. So now they move down south, and this is where they're encircled by fire, and they have a marvelous experience. They see the faces of the prophets, and they ask, what do we need to do? And they repent, and then they go out and preach the gospel to the rest of the Lamanites. Now, at the end of chapter 5, verse 49, there were about 300 souls who saw and heard these things, and they, the 300 Lamanites were bidden to go forth and marvel not, they should not doubt. And it came to pass that they did go forth and did minister unto the people, declaring throughout all the regions round about all the things which they had seen and heard, insomuch that the more part of the Lamanites were convinced of them because of the greatness of the evidences which they had received. And as many as were convinced did lay down their weapons of war and also their hatred and the traditions of their fathers. And then the last verse of chapter 5, it ought to have bells around it, and it should be highlighted with lights. It came to pass that they did yield up unto the Nephites the lands of their possessions. What Moroniah could not do with the sword, Nephi did by handling it 
the way the gospel teaches us to handle it. And that's what Daniel teaches us. We can say to the world, I will not bow to your image. I will not eat the king's meat. But we can do it in an environment of love and respect and concern that the gospel dictates. I wonder how much of the animosity that exists today between religious people and non-religious people is because of the reaction of religious people. I wonder if religious people have reacted in a way that created more of the problem than solved the problem. So maybe maybe we have been guilty of being negative and spiteful and angry and all of the things we should not be. Maybe we can be like Daniel and create a relationship of favor and tender love in which there's mutual respect. If you watch how Daniel interprets the king's dreams, even in chapter 5, where clearly this is an evil man, and the dream of the tree is going to portray that, if you watch how Daniel treats Nebuchadnezzar as he interprets these dreams— There is no question in my mind why at the end of Daniel chapter 2, the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole providence of Babylon and the chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Now, I know we don't get a whole lot in chapter 3 about Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, but if you look at the end of chapter 2, they had to have handled it the same way because at the request of Daniel, the king set Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah over the affairs of the providence of Babylon. So to me, one of the great lessons we need to pull out of Daniel is courage to stand strong to not defile ourselves with the king's meat, with the king's way of life and what the world says I should do. I'm not going to bow down to the image when the music plays, but I'm going to do that. I'm going to be defiant with love, with Ammon-like service and care. I like that. I think that's important. So chapter 2 of Daniel is this dream that King Nebuchadnezzar has, and he's troubled. So chapter 2, verse 10 says, no one could tell him what was the matter, and he's really upset in verse 12. And so the decree went forth in verse 13 that these wise men are going to be slain, and then they seek Daniel. So I can only imagine Daniel saying, oh, that's not going to be something I'm excited to do. You know, this is a lot of pressure. And so they come and they, they answer the king, and they basically say in verse 28, there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets and makes known to the king what shall be in the latter days. And so we have the interpretation of the dream in verse 31, where it's a great image, it was an image of a statue, and the head was of gold, the breasts and the arms were of silver, the belly and thighs were of brass, and the legs were of iron, and the feet were part iron and part clay. And then there's a vision where a, a stone comes out down out of the mountain that's cut without hands, and it destroys this, and it basically fills the whole earth. That's verse 35. 
Then was the iron and the clay and the brass and the silver and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, and no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. And then he breaks down that these kingdoms are kingdoms of the world. You, the king of Babylon, are the head of gold. That's verse 38. And then after that, there are these subservient kingdoms. Now, know this, that pretentious dreams of the fate of the kingdoms of the world were common in the ancient world. We actually read this in Herodotus. He talks about this. Here, however, the author uses an older prediction of four world kingdoms, and we understand these to be Babylonia, Media, Persia, and Greece. And it emphasizes, at least in this vision, their decreasing value. And so... These kingdoms are followed by a mixed kingdom of iron and clay, which probably signifies the divided Greek kingdoms. After Alexander the Great conquers the ancient world, his kingdom is divided amongst his generals, and these generals rule different parts of the ancient world and the eastern Mediterranean. And so we see this, at least in the second century following Alexander the Great's conquest, that the Jews that lived in Jerusalem were being oppressed by a military leader by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And so we're going to see that later in chapters 7 through 12, where it, the little horn is discussed. But that's kind of the big picture. We start with Babylon, the head, and then we get to these lesser kingdoms. And if you look at it, it kind of has this downgrade of metals. We start with gold, and then we go to silver, and then we go to brass, and then iron, and then clay. So that's big picture. But I think the heart of Daniel 2 is this idea that the kingdom of God is going to replace all the kingdoms. And so that's verse 44 and verse 45. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Verse 45, For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation is sure. Now, historically, we see Christians that kind of enforce Christianity by the sword. There were individuals that took these passages quite literally, and they did execute wars of conquest, especially in the 11th and 12th centuries. And a lot of that is going to stem from the fourth century when the church and the empire became one. And that's one thing that the founders of our countries pushed against. The founders of the United States of America didn't want church and state to be united. They didn't want freedom from religion. They wanted freedom of religion because they saw that when the state imposed religious ideas, that the state used power that was not appropriate, and that religion should be something that we do freely, but it should not be forced. But yet, for the first few centuries after Christ, once church and state becomes unified, religion really was emphasized and enforced with the sword. And the people that were doing this were reading Daniel. That was their interpretation. They said, hey, listen, the kingdom is going to roll forth. The kingdom must roll forth. And I think in our context today, we see this, and we see it as okay, the kingdom of God is going to roll forth and fill the earth, but it's not going to be by force. It's not with the sword, 
but it's with love. It's with the Savior. And it's also the logic of the argument. Once we feel the Spirit and understand who Christ is, then we're going to want to come to him. And that's going to be the message at the back part of Daniel. A big part of the message at the end of Daniel in 7 through 12 is that the Son of Man's going to come. When the Lord gives the commandment to build up Zion in Jackson County, he says in section 63, he says, the land of Zion shall not be obtained but by purchase or by blood. Otherwise, there is none inheritance for you. If by purchase, blessed are you. And if by blood, as you are forbidden to shed blood, lo, your enemies are upon you, and you shall be scourged from city to city and from synagogue to synagogue, but few shall stand to receive the inheritance. In other words, he makes it very clear that Zion is not to be built up by the sword. The kingdom is not to be spread by you shedding blood. Um, You can see how easy it was to misinterpret, but in our day, the Lord has made very clear that that's not how the kingdom moves forward. I do want to note in this podcast, in section 65 of the Doctrine and Covenants, that the Lord says in verse 2, the keys of the kingdom of God are committed unto man on the earth, and from thence shall the gospel roll forth unto the ends of the earth, as the stone which is cut out of the mountain without hands shall roll forth, until it has filled the whole earth. And so the Lord acknowledges in section 65 of the Doctrine and Covenants that this is going to happen, and this is the hope of the apocalyptic core of the book of Daniel. The people that read this book and used it to preach were visionaries, and there's a lot of turmoil in their world. And the hope for them was the Son of Man. He was going to come and fix these things. The Son of Man teaching was a big deal. And so a lot of the book of Daniel is really the foundational message of the Christian world. The people that believed in Jesus and wrote the New Testament used the book of Daniel, and it was very important to them. And they had messianic expectations of the kingdom to come in their day. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us when the day is going to be. Typically in the New Testament, he says, it's soon. And for us, we still have this anticipation of the messianic kingdom coming, the Son of Man coming and fixing things. But that really is the message in chapter 2. It does say in our King James Version, verse 28, that it will occur in the latter days. But we'll leave that for now. So I think there's two things we need to point out, and the first one is clearly what even the Christians missed. If they're imposing the kingdom of God with the sword, they've missed the whole point. Because all of these kingdoms, from the gold head all the way down to the toes, have enforced with the sword, and that's what caused them to fall. Not one of them who enforces their way with the sword is going to stand. In Helaman chapter 6, watch how the believers in Christ tried to eliminate the Gadianton robbers. Notice in verse 20, Now it came to pass that when the Lamanites found that there were robbers among them, they were exceedingly sorrowful, and they did use every means in their power to destroy them off the face of the earth. Doesn't that sound like they used the sword? They used every means in their power, and it didn't work. It didn't help. But now contrast verse 20 with verse 37. 
And it came to pass this time, this is the second time, that the Lamanites did hunt the band of robbers of Gadianton. And they did preach the word of God among the more wicked part of them, insomuch that the band of robbers was utterly destroyed from among the Lamanites. Take a moment this week as you study Daniel chapter 2 and ask yourself, why is it that the kingdoms, the political kingdoms, fall to an inferior kingdom, but the kingdom of God fills the earth. I think the idea is if we have an environment where ideas can be presented, if we can have rational discussion, then the good ideas will bear fruit and they will win over. And I think that as long as we allow that discussion to happen, the logic of a, of a righteous argument is just going to win out eventually. Yep. I mean, if you come to me and you show me a lamp and you're trying to sell me a lamp and your lamp is brighter than my lamp, all you have to do is put it next to my lamp and then... I see that yours is brighter. If I try to force it by taking your lamp away, you know, that's not going to work, right? Right. Now, one more testimonial. In Revelation chapter 13, when the image of the beast comes out of the sea and is dreadful and tries to conquer the righteous people, there's this interesting phrase in Revelation 13 verse 10, he that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. In other words, we know that if there's a tyrannical oppressor who uses the sword to conquer, he will be conquered by the sword. And that's why the kingdom of God survives. That's why the kingdom cut without hands, the kingdom of God fills the earth and crushes the image. Because to live by God's standards brings us success. Now, that's my second point, and I'm going to let Joseph Smith teach it. We'll put this whole sermon in the show notes. It's a beautiful commentary by Joseph on government. He says the following, The world itself presents one great theater of misery, woe, and distress of nations with perplexity. All speak with a voice of thunder that man is not able to govern himself, to legislate for himself, to protect himself, to promote his own good, nor the good of the world. If that's not what Daniel's image teaches, you can pinpoint those different kingdoms to any one you want. You don't have to do Babylon followed by the Medes and the Persians. and the. You, you could do Rome. You could do the Vikings. You could do... Genghis Khan, it doesn't matter. One kingdom will live for a while and fall. And another kingdom will live for a while and fall because man can't govern himself. And then Joseph makes this declaration. It has been the design of Jehovah from the commencement of the world and is his purpose now to regulate the affairs of the world in his own time. Now, this is Bryce inserting, there's the stone cut out of the mountains without hands that God intends to govern the world. Now, Joseph continues, to stand as head of the universe and take the reins of government into his own land. When that is done, judgment will be administered in righteousness Anarchy and confusion will be destroyed, and nations will learn war no more. 
other attempts to promote universal peace and happiness in the human family have proven abortive. Every effort has failed. Every plan and design has fallen to the ground. It needs the wisdom of God, the intelligence of God, and the power of God to accomplish it, end quote. Which I believe is one of the reasons the Constitution has survived, is because it was inspired by God. When God is involved, then men can govern. By the way, I think that is the point. I think that the founders realize all the laws in the world are not going to establish freedom if we're not a God-fearing people. I just finished a book by Jonathan Sachs, and the book is called Morality. And he essentially says this, where he says, the secularism of the West is literally pulling apart our systems because the moral part of our inner man, we have to acknowledge it. And if we don't, we're just going to fracture. Jonathan Sachs's book is excellent in the sense that it takes the argument for spirituality and it couches it in secular language. It uses the arguments from secularism to make the point that we need religion. Religion is this check on power. I mean, essentially, you know, we have the power of the state and then we have the power of business. And those are really the two beasts that John sees come out of the sea. One beast is the power of the state, and the other one is the power of economics. And in the economies of the world, it's all about profit. And yet in the economy of God, it's all about people. And so if we don't have that check where instead of just rushing towards profit, but I'm, you know, instead of rushing towards that, but I'm actually caring about people. The moral check that we have to have is so important to balance these things. And so I love where Benjamin Franklin was asked during the Constitutional Convention where they said, you know, what are you doing? What are you working on? And what have you built? And his response was, a republic. That's what we're building, if you can keep it. And the if you can keep it part from Benjamin Franklin, my take, is that he's saying, we put this together. But it's up to you. If you're going to be a moral people, we can do this. And I, I really do think that when we say that man is not capable of governing himself, I think it's true if we say the natural man. We have to have God. We have to. I love that when King Mosiah is turning the kingdom into a system of judges, an elected system, he's turning the government over to the people. In Mosiah chapter 29, he says, now therefore I will be your king the remainder of my days. Nevertheless, let us appoint judges to judge this people according to our law. And we will newly arrange the affairs of this people, for we will appoint wise men to be judges that will judge this people according to the commandments of God. Now, it is better that a man should be judged of God than a man, for the judgments of God are always just, but the judgments of man are not always just. The implication here is that we will appoint laws that incorporate the principles of God. And when we write a Declaration of Independence and we say that we are going to defend God-given rights— of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. When God is a partner in our government, it can stand. But the point here, I think, is really clear, is that man alone cannot govern himself. 
only when man turns to God. Therefore, come back to our original point. We live in an environment, we are exiles, and Babylon is trying to impose its will upon us and turn us from our God. Well, the lesson from Daniel is that we cannot survive without God. And I can stand up and defend my religion God's way in such a way that I don't promote the fracturing of society. I don't promote the animosity that exists between us. Yeah. Okay, we're now going to jump to chapters four and five. And I must say that chapter four and five are a little bit different. They're a little bit weird. I mean, what's going on here? We have this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has of a tree. And then essentially Daniel says, yeah, you're going to be mad. Uh, And so that's going to be really fun. But then he's going to come out of it. So let's go there. Let's go to verse 10. There were visions of mine head in my bed. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and the height thereof was great. And the tree grew and was strong. And the height thereof reached unto heaven, and the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. The leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. So after he has this dream of the world tree, then he sees a watcher. Now the watchers are going to be these angelic beings in the book of Enoch. And remember, the books of Enoch are these writings of apocalyptic authors that had these visions, and they're written in the first couple hundred years before Jesus and a little bit after Jesus. And so that's the time period of many of these apocalyptic texts that don't make it into the Bible. And in the book of Enoch, the watchers are these divine beings that come down to earth, and sometimes they're portrayed as good, and sometimes they're portrayed as evil. There's a group of evil watchers that come down and swear by the throat to take over the kingdom of God, and we referred to them back when we talked about Genesis 6. But these watchers seem to be doing something to the tree. Look in verse 14. He cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree and cut off his branches. Shake off the leaves and scatter the fruit. Let the beasts get away from under it and the fowls from the branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth. Now, if you remember back when we talked about Isaiah 11, a similar vision is given to Isaiah. And the tree we read in Isaiah 11, at least when we use the lens of the Doctrine and Covenants, section 113, we read that the tree is Jesus, that he was cut down. So in this chapter in Daniel, this tree is not going to be Jesus, but it's going to be the king. The king is going to be cut down. Verse 16 says, let his heart be changed from man's and let a beast's heart be given unto him and let seven times pass over him. This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand of the word of the holy ones. So we have these watchers coming down from heaven. They're issuing this decree in the vision that the king basically has his heart changed. We read in verse 33 that he goes mad and he eats grass, and his nails grow out long, and he loses his mind, essentially, for seven years. And that's in verse 33 and verse 34. But then he's restored to health, and it brings him to verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, 
all whose works are truth, and his ways judgment. And those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. So it brings the king to acknowledge that Jehovah is the God of the whole earth. I think that's the gist of this chapter. And that's coming from the king. That's not coming from Daniel. That testimony is very significant to have the king of Babylon say, you know what? God rules in the heavens, and men really don't. I just think that's such a beautiful comment that it comes from Nebuchadnezzar's mouth. Yeah. So with that, let's go to chapter 5. New king. Yeah, we got a different king here in chapter 5. It presents the king of Babylon as Belshazzar. Belshazzar was the son of the last king of Babylon, Nabonidus, and he governed Babylon in the absence of his father, and he's reveling in drink from the vessels of the temple. And then there's these words that appear on the wall. Go to verse 24. Then was part of the hand sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the writing that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Upharsin. This is the interpretation of the thing. Mene, God has numbered the kingdom and finished it. Tekel, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And in that night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain. Now, I want to say this in relation to those words that are written on the wall. This message was written by a divine hand, and it's written in Aramaic in the palace of the king, and it's basically written in the form of a riddle. It was for this reason that the ruler in his court couldn't figure out the meaning. Mene does mean numbering in Aramaic, which according to Daniel meant that the number of days determined by God for Babylon, that number was up. And essentially what God is saying to them is Babylon is going to be put down. Then tekel is a measure of weight. And so Belshazzar has been weighed on a scale and has been found wanting and Uparsin can be rendered as separations or divisions. And then Daniel linked the singular form Perez as a separation or a division by a play on words with the name of the nation which would conquer Babylon, Perez, or the Persians. Thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So essentially, these words can be interpreted on a couple of levels because the weights are getting smaller and smaller until they're nothing. You see, Mene in Aramaic is a mina. It's a little more than a half of a kilogram or about 20 ounces. Tekel is a shekel or 11 grams or less than half an ounce. And Uparsin is a dual form of Perez or two half minas. And they sound like verbs. Mene sounds like the verb to number and Tekel sounds like the verb to weigh. And Uparsin sounds like to divide. And so what we see is we see the weights get smaller and smaller and smaller. Thereby, one way to read this is you, the king of Babylon, you're the least of these. In other words, you're going to continue to decrease until you guys are taken out. So it's like a play on words on a couple of levels. We have this idea that you're, you're being weighed and measured and divided out, and you're going to be taken over by the Persians. But we also have a pun where it's this idea that the weights are getting smaller and smaller until they're nothing. And essentially, the message here is that they're going to be taken. Now, Daniel goes on to say that after the death of Belshazzar, quote, Darius the Mede received the kingdom, 
the scholars look at this and they say no such figure is known to history, at least as, as we know it. Scholars take apart Daniel 5 and they say, there's so many historical problems. I can't settle them. I'm just acknowledging them. But I think the big picture, what we see here is we have a king who is parting, living it up. And then we have a prophet of God saying, hey, that's not how it's going to play out. Babylon is not where we're going to go. And God's going to weigh it, he's going to measure it, and he's going to divide it. Babylon's going to have their day, but eventually Babylon is going to be put down. And so another way to read chapter 5 is the great exchange that we read earlier in the last part of Isaiah, where Babylon's going to leave the throne, God is going to replace Babylon with his kingdom, and Babylon shall drink from the vessels of the temple no more. I think that's the main message. Now, in the rabbinic literature, the rabbis are all talking about this. Their interpretation of this is that Belshazzar is celebrating the fact that Daniel told him that the kingdom would be taken, that the Persians would come, and nothing happened. And so the prophecy was wrong, according to rabbinic tradition, and that Belshazzar is celebrating with the vessels of the temple, basically uh, sticking his nose up at the God of Israel saying, you're not God. And that then there becomes writing on this wall to say, oh no, it's going to happen. Now that's not what it says in the text, but that's the rabbinic tradition with this chapter. I would like to point out one interesting parallel that happens in the Book of Mormon. When Nephi breaks his bow and they go without food and they murmur, even Lehi murmurs, I'm going to read from 1 Nephi 16, 26 and 27 and see if this sounds familiar to what the Lord did in Babylon. It came to pass that the voice of the Lord said unto us, Look upon the ball, and behold the things which are written. And it came to pass that when my father beheld the things which were written upon the ball, he did fear and tremble exceedingly, and also my brethren and the sons of Ishmael and our wives. I wonder if it's a similar message written by the finger of God to say, This isn't how we do it. This is not how we're going to be led. I just think that's significant that there's writing on the wall of the temple in Babylon and there's writing on the wall of the Leahona, both causing the people to read them to kind of shake at the message. Interesting parallel. Yeah, excellent. So with that, let's go to chapter 6. Chapter 6 to me, when I was a child, was the, one of the most memorable chapters in the entire Bible. I remember hearing this story of Daniel in the lion's den as a child. I couldn't get it out of my head, and I thought it was just incredible. The big picture of this chapter is that there is this edict or this ban that is put in place that says, you can't worship anybody else. Whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for 30 days, save thee, O king, he shall be cast into a den of lions. In other words, Anybody who acknowledges any God but you, king, we're just going to make sure that that person is cast into a den of lions. And here's Daniel just being his obedient self, kneeling in his chamber three times a day, praying to God privately, his private worship in verse 10, and he's caught. And when they bring him before the king, he says, yeah, I have made a petition to God three times a day. And then the tension, and this is where chapter 6 is differing from the other chapters in Daniel. In this chapter, the king doesn't want to put Daniel in this position. He's not excited about this. It's kind of like against his own will that this happens. And this is a common theme 
in some of the literature of the Jews, and I I don't know... Kind of like Haman and Mordecai. Yeah, we're back to Taking out a rival, getting the king to pass a law to take out a rival. Yes, yes. The theme of the ignorant king, or the theme of the noble yet bumbling king, meaning the king is deep down a good person, but he's been duped by his princes. The writers of these scriptures are writing these texts, and they're in a position of lacking power. So how do we project our image while at the same time denigrating the powers that be without denigrating the powers that be? How do we do that? And one way to do it is to portray the king as good, but being duped. I think that's an important distinction. And so we see it, like you said, in Esther, we see it here in Daniel. The king doesn't want to do this, but he puts him in the den. But in the text here, we read that the king's not excited about this. Go to verse 16 in chapter 6. The king commanded, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Now the king said, Daniel, thy God whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. So the king is actually hopeful. And so then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his signet and the signet of his lords. Verse 18, and then the king went to the palace and passed the night fasting. Neither were instruments of music brought before him, and his sleep went from him. And then the king rose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. And the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God whom thou servest continually able to deliver thee from the lions? And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, that they have not hurt me, for as much as before him innocency was found in me, and also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. And then the king was exceedingly glad for him. And so we have here Daniel being delivered, but then we have a really troubling verse, and that's verse 24. And this is back to that idea of collective punishment. And we put some stuff in the show notes for you if you're interested, but just know that in the Old Testament, it's commonly taught that if someone commits a crime, that they and their associates and their families are punished for the crime. And we see the same kind of thing happening at the end of Esther. We see the same kind of thing happening in the book of Joshua with Achan. And we're actually going to see some of this in the book of Acts as well, in the New Testament, where individuals who commit crime have what we call collective or corporate punishment. And that's a difficult verse. But if we read verse 24 through the lens of antiquity and just realize, once again, that God communicates to man in his time and in his culture, and culturally that's kind of how they viewed things, it will be easier to read. But at the end of the chapter, we have Darius testifying of Jehovah, and that's where we read verse 26. He says, he wants to make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men will tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. And so that's the message essentially of chapter six. Once again, be faithful in opposition, stand for truth, and even the people that oppress you will declare that God is good, that God is great. Now, just know that historically there are some problems with it. This idea that there's a ban on worshiping God has some historical issues because that really wasn't what was going on in that time period. This idea that you can't worship God is probably historically implausible. No king of this period who claimed divine status 
forbade the worship of other gods. The Darius of chapter 6, historically, was supportive of local religions, including that of the Jews. Now, I know that we have this Darius the Mede in the fifth chapter, and there's not anybody like that in history. A lot of scholars think that perhaps Darius the Mede, they try to make that be Cyrus, and that would work. But this Darius that's ruling in chapter 6, Darius the Persian, was supportive of local religions historically, including that of the Jews. So whether or not chapter 6 is historical or not, I just want to acknowledge the messiness of it, and that's okay. Like, it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It may well have happened, and it may have been over another issue. Perhaps one way to see this is that the issue isn't over worship, but somehow Daniel gets in trouble and gets cast into the lion's den, and the author of chapter 6 sees that the God of Israel saves Daniel and then tells the story, and in the telling, the motive for what gets him in there is put as this strict belief by Darius that we can't have any other worship. Just know that historically, kings were very well aware that everybody had their own gods, and they're allowing this. Now that brings us to the end of Come, Follow Me. Come, Follow Me is one through six, but there's still several more chapters of Daniel. A lot of them are visionary and kind of pick up on that theme of one kingdom destroying another kingdom. It's going to be more of chapter two, but with different images, rams and different types of animals. But we're going to take a quick look at seven through 12, those of you who are interested. Chapter seven begins with four beasts. Now, again, we're going to see this in John, where he also sees four beasts that contend with each other until the kingdom of God comes. In chapter 7, that takes the form of Adam coming, the Ancient of Days. Verse 9, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, that same idea that kingdoms take out kingdoms and they're replaced by another kingdom, until the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow and his hair of his head like pure wool. So here comes Adam, who began the world and will end the world. Adam on Diamond is kind of the bookends, that Adam began and Adam will end, and that we will return to that Adam presiding, and then Jesus will come and take the keys from Adam. So it's that imagery of God's kingdom will prevail while men's kingdom are kind of falling apart. Yeah. So at the outset of these chapters, I just want to acknowledge there's a lot going on in here. And you can kind of get lost in the weeds. And so we did a write-up on every one of these chapters separately. And so we linked that in the show notes. So this is just going to be a brief overview. And so I see why it's skipped and come follow me. I mean, can you imagine if you're called to teach 7 through 12? I get why it's skipped. Like, this is not easy stuff. But I also think in this podcast, one of the goals Bryce and I had when we started out was, no, we're going to talk about the difficult stuff because, you know, that's what we do. And so... There are four apocalyptic visions here. Chapter 7 is the first one. Chapter 8 is the second one. Chapter 9 is the third apocalyptic vision. And then Daniel chapter 10 through 12 is the fourth and final apocalyptic vision in Daniel. So we have these kingdoms here, these beasts rising up out of the sea. And remember, the kingdoms of, of man are typically going to be described as beasts coming out of the sea. We read that in verse 3, diverse from one another. And then we have this fourth beast in verse 7 that's terrible and strong, and it has great iron teeth, and it's devouring and breaking things in pieces. And then it says, 
It was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from among them another little horn. And that little horn throughout these chapters is going to cause problems for the Jews. And historically, we read that little horn as Antiochus Epiphanes that reigned from essentially 175 to 164 BC. I like to call him the Darth Vader of the Second Temple period. He was a really bad guy. He was awful towards the Jewish people. And he comes back again and again and again. Yeah. He just never can shake him. Yeah, yeah. He's definitely a bad guy. He's going to come to Jerusalem and sacrifice a pig on the altar and kill women who have their children circumcised and basically cause all kinds of problems for the Jews, religious persecution and the like. The Jews that live in the second century really want him to die. They don't like him. He's just awful. And so this little horn is going to pop up in these visions, and the author of the text is seeing this apocalyptic vision that the enemies of truth are going to be put down. Now, many of the Jews that read the Ancient of Days in verse 9 see that as God. Joseph Smith defined that as Adam. Notice verse 10, that this fiery stream issues forth before him, and then we have thousands ministered unto him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him, and the judgment was set, and the books were opened. So we have this vision of an individual on a throne with fiery streams coming forth. It's a heavenly vision. And then we have this, verse 13. I saw in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given unto him dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom which shall not be destroyed. That image of the Son of Man coming with a kingdom is a fundamental message of the New Testament. Verse 18 says, The saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess it, the kingdom, forever and ever, even forever and ever. We read it again in verse 22. The saints will possess the kingdom Over and over again, the author of these chapters is emphasizing the importance that judgment will come and the kingdom and dominion will be given to the saints. That's also again in verse 27. It's repeated over and over again. So the Son of Man teaching was a big deal. And if we read the New Testament, I mean, one scholar said that there's 81 references to the Son of Man in the Gospels alone. I find this really interesting. So Daniel, even though it's kind of different, is really the foundational message of the Christian world. And historically, like whenever it was written, I don't really care because there's really cool stuff in there. Now I'm going to do a brief overview of some of the Son of Man passages in the literature that was produced in this time period. The time period I'm referring to is the first couple hundred years before Jesus. And There's a lot of scholars that do this, that put this literature together in a a way that's easier to read, but the one I want to reference is Sigmund Mowinkle. He wrote a book called He That Cometh, and the last chapter in his book is all about the Son of Man prophecies in this time period. And so this is a brief overview of several pages of text, but essentially we read that the Son of Man is going to do a bunch of things, and as we talk about this, just ask yourself, where have I heard this before? We have in what's called the Testament of Dan, which is a a document 
uh, apocalyptic in nature of this same time period that the son of man is going to bind Azazel, Belial, or Satan. So in other words, Satan's going to be bound. We read that the destruction of the wicked will happen and that it's interesting that in the apocalypse of Baruch, if you remember our Jeremiah podcast, there's actually an apocalyptic vision by this individual named Baruch where he says that the heathen nations shall be redeemed when the Son of Man comes. And I find that interesting because if you read section 45 of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 54, the Lord says in section 45 that when the Savior comes, the heathen nations shall be redeemed, and they that knew no law shall have part in the first resurrection. So we have apocalyptic literature at about the time of Daniel talking about the heathen nations surviving the destruction that is brought about by the Son of Man when the wicked are destroyed. We have the Son of Man coming with heavenly beings. We see it here in Daniel chapter 7, but we also see it in Matthew 25 and in First and Second Thessalonians and in another text called Second Esdras chapter 7 where we have circles of heavenly beings coming with the Son of Man. We have the Son of Man coming to judge the world in the apocalypse of Ezra and many other apocalyptic visionaries of this time. We have him coming from the sea in the apocalypse of Ezra. And I find that really interesting that at the beginning of chapter 7, the beasts that are coming out of the sea are being attacked by the Son of Man that's coming out of the sea. And then we also have God putting the Son of Man on the throne in the books of Enoch and many other apocalyptic visions. The Son of Man is put on a throne. He really is the ideal man. He's preexistent and he's the king of paradise. The apocalypse of Ezra talks about this over and over again, that the son of man is the king of paradise and the king of the heavenly people. And so big picture, if we read chapter seven, and then we read some of the other apocalyptic visionaries that were writing at this time, the son of man teaching was a big deal. Now, chapter eight, essentially, is going to talk about Alexander's four generals and the dividing up of the kingdom. Remember, Alexander the Great, 330s, he's kind of taken over the world, and when he dies, his empire is kind of carved up into four bits. And so big picture, I think that's a good way to to look at chapter 8. Then, Daniel chapter 9 is the third apocalyptic vision. This chapter contains Daniel's confession that the reason for the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and that captivity is due to the failure of the Jewish people to be faithful to their covenant. I mean, that's basically the first 19 verses. It's during this prayer that the man Gabriel appears to him. That's in verse 21. And Gabriel informs Daniel that 70 weeks are determined upon thy people. That's verse 24. After this, Gabriel tells Daniel... After threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood, and to the end of the war desolations are determined. That's Daniel 9. In essence, why was the temple destroyed? Because you guys were bad. You guys were doing bad things. Verse 14, we obeyed not the voice. Verse 15, we sinned, we have done wickedly. Okay, Daniel chapter 10 through 12 is the fourth and final apocalyptic vision in Daniel. And essentially in this, we see great tension and war between the visionaries and the bad guys. That's big picture what we see. And you can kind of get lost in the weeds. 
We wrote about this a ton in the show notes. You're welcome to go check that out. But essentially what we have here, we think, is we have Antiochus defeating his enemies, and then finally he comes, and he's causing all these problems for the Jews, and they're in captivity, they're having all these problems, and he's magnifying himself. That's in chapter 11, verse 36. He doesn't regard God. That's chapter 11, verse 37. And then we read this. Go to verse 40. At the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him. That's going to be the leader of Egypt. And the king of the north shall come against him, that's Antiochus, like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships. Verse 41, he shall enter into the glorious land and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab. Verse 42, he shall stretch forth his hand upon the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over the precious things of Egypt. Verse 44, but tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly make away many. He shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. Verse 45 is a prophecy that Antiochus is going to die in or around Jerusalem. Scholars look at this, historians look at these chapters, and they call this ex eventu prophecies. And what that means is a prophecy that is written after the event happened. They see these chapters as predicting things that will happen, and yet they're written after they happened. And they date these chapters to this period of 165-164 B.C., And the reason why they do is they say all the prophecies in these chapters happen until you get to verses 44 through 45 in chapter 11. You see, in these verses, it predicts that Antiochus will die in or around Jerusalem, but that historically does not happen. Antiochus Epiphanes doesn't die here. He dies raiding a temple in Persia at this time. And so while he does die, he doesn't die here. And so that causes... Uh, scholars to basically assume that that's when this was written. And I'm totally okay with that. I I want you to know that. I'm also okay with, hey, maybe verse 45 is in error. Maybe there's some things we don't know, but that's what scholars do with it. And so that's why they say that this is a second century production. Basically, verses 40 through 45 is what we call the smoking gun. Now, all that being said, for me, I read it and say, okay, that's fine. They're still having these apocalyptic visions where they're seeing that the kingdom will come to earth and that the kingdom will, quote, make them white. We see that in verse 35, where the people are made pure, the visionaries are holding fast and true to their covenants, and they're fighting against these powers that are dark and that are oppressing them. So I see all that is good. And then especially in chapter 12, I think this is the key. Look in verse 1 of chapter 12. At that time shall Michael stand up. So at the time of all this conflict, Michael will stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. Now, remember, John in Revelation is going to see the names of the holy ones written in the book. And we're going to see that in the Doctrine and Covenants as well. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, 
some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the end times. And then he says it again in verse 9. The words are closed up and sealed until the end times. And then notice, verse 10, many will be purified and be made holy and tried. But the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And so another way to read this book, verse 4 and 9, is that the book is sealed. And so some interpreters, especially Latter-day Saint ones, read 7 through 12 and say, hey, I'm not going to get into the historical weeds of what's what, because the book's sealed. And then we have Joseph Smith saying, hey, unless the Lord's given an exact interpretation, you don't have to subscribe to any of these. And yet when you read 2 Maccabees, I mean, if you read the book of 2 Maccabees, which is this intertestamental book, it's not in our Bibles, but it's in other Bibles, the book of Maccabees really does teach the oppression that the Jews felt at this time period, and it does portray Antiochus in negative terms, and it does lend itself to this interpretation. And so I'm just acknowledging that, that there was this great oppression in the second century, and if you lived at that time period, they were hopeful for the Son of Man, that he's going to come and fix things. This is beautiful stuff, and this really is laying the foundation for much of the message of the New Testament, and frankly, a lot of the things going on in Latter-day Saint theology and in the Book of Mormon, right? We have a clear reference in verse 2 of Daniel 12 to a resurrection, something that many biblical scholars say is not really outlined in the Old Testament. The Old Testament really is not hammering that message as much, and yet here it is in Daniel. Now, there were another group of Jews in Jesus' day that didn't believe in a resurrection, and they were reading the same Old Testament. Those individuals were called the Sadducees. And so there was tension in Judaism in Jesus' day. Is there a resurrection or is there not? And Jesus fell on the side of, yes, there is. And Jesus quotes Daniel when he talks about the coming of the Son of Man. So I think 7 through 12 are important, but I'm also acknowledging the complexity historically and some of those issues. Yeah. So with that, let's conclude. So I want to leave you with First Nephi. One of the great messages of the Book of Mormon that we get at the very beginning is this idea of being at the tree and partaking of the love of God. Two groups of people in Lehi's dream make it to the tree. Two don't, but two make it to the tree. Now, one of those that makes it to the tree stays and one does not. And the major difference between those who stay and those who do not is the heed they gave to others. And that's kind of the story of Daniel. Do you worry about what others are worshiping? Do you bow to the pressure to worship as the world worships and to say the things that the world thinks is appropriate? Or do you kindly say to them, I will not defile myself, and that the God that I worship is able to save me from the flames? But if not, even if he doesn't, I will not bow down and worship the images of the world. It is our testimony that if you hold firm and stay at that tree, 
you will feast upon the fruit of that tree and you will be filled. Hold on to what you know is true in spite of all the pressure we face from others to let go. Jesus once asked his disciples, whom do men say that I am? As if to say, do you care? Are you going to listen to what men say about me? And then he looked them right in the eyes and said, what do you believe about me? Who do you believe I am? We acknowledge that we live in digital Babylon. We live surrounded by pressures to bow to the images of the world. May Daniel inspire you to hold firm. May you know that all of these political kingdoms will crumble. They will not stand, but the kingdom of God will stand. When we stand with Christ, we may struggle in Babylon a little bit, but in the end, our God will save us. That is our testimony and Daniel's testimony. May you never forget those wonderful words, but if not, we still will not bow the knee. And with that, we'll see you next week when we cover Hosea and Joel. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.